the objection to real estate investing that I hear most often is, I don't want to be a landlady. It's true, not everyone is cut out for the job and not everyone can handle all aspects with ease. But don't let this hold you back. Welcome back, wealthy women or future wealthy women. If you are just, if you haven't tuned in for a while, you should know that we're reading my book, which is Empower Your Inner Millionaire, A Woman's Guide to Financial Freedom Through Real Estate Investing. And we're up to chapter four, but I don't want to be a landlady. If you want to follow along in the book, in the hard copy, you can go on to eyimbook.com and buy the hard copy. You can also go to Amazon and just search for Empower Your Inner Millionaire, McCarran, probably the best thing to do and make sure you get that. And you can download it immediately, the e-version. Or I think on the website, there's a place to download the PDF version for free, but don't be cheap. Have a scare, don't have a scarcity mindset and think that you want to save $1.99 and not buy the ebook or 20 bucks and not buy the hard copy because you are very soon going to be extremely wealthy. So start today thinking of your abundance mindset and buy the actual hard copy of the book. Okay. Chapter four. I don't want it, but I don't want to be a landlady. Goals for chapter four, understand the job of a landlady and learn about options for being a landlady or land person. I don't know what the <laughs> correct phrase is. Lady of the land. The objection to real estate investing that I hear most often is, I don't want to be a landlady. It's true. Not everyone is cut out for the job and not everyone can handle all aspects with ease, but don't let this hold you back. You can outsource some or all of the responsibility to others. And there are ways, which we'll talk about soon, to avoid ever having to be involved in the leasing side of real estate investings. <clears throat> in the leasing side of real estate investing. With few exceptions, though, owning and managing the property yourself without paid help is the most lucrative way to invest in real estate. As soon as you add people, you have to share the pot. So before you completely rule out the idea, let's delve a bit let's delve a bit more deeply and see what it really means to be a lady of the land. Residential. I've always been squeamish about calling people and asking for rent, but I know people who truly enjoy it. My favorite type of tenant is one who I only have to talk to when it's time to renew leases. But a lot of my investor friends have very close relationships with their tenants, and they look forward to picking up the rent in person each month. I'm happiest when my tenants deposit their rent directly into my account, bills get paid automatically, and life is easy. But many people love the meditative process of collecting checks, doing paperwork, etc. When Anne-Marie bought her three-family, the upstairs tenants had lived in the house for 21 years. They seemed nice, but spoke almost no English, and their rent was well below the market rate for the area. The downstairs tenant was a single mom who shouted a lot at her tall, scary-looking adult son and two younger kids and had a yappy dog. I imagined myself managing these two tenants, and it gave me goosebumps. We talked about it before the purchase, and Anne-Marie, who stands all of five feet tall, said it didn't bother her, and that she was excited to take on the challenge. And I can tell you now, many years later, that she rocks it. She's so good at it. It's amazing. 
As a property owner, the most important job you have is selecting good tenants. Many of the residential landladies I've met have owned property for many years. They say that the key is finding tenants with a good credit score. Maintaining a great credit score isn't easy, and it's something that you usually have to do intentionally. If your tenants are making sure their credit score stays high, they are not going to jeopardize it by paying rent late. One landlady told me if her tenants have a score of 750 or above, they will pay their rent a week early. 700 to 750, they'll pay on time. And under 700, they'll be late and have excuses at least a few times during their tenancy. Of course, good scores can run into financial problems and people with low scores can improve. But when you're looking for a fair, objective way to evaluate people, credit score is one option. As a new rental agent, I once worked with a family relocating to Boston from Florida. The Florida market had gone bust and they had lost their home. Their credit score was terrible and I felt really bad for them. It wasn't easy, but I was able to find a landlord who was sympathetic to their situation and who was willing to offer them a place to rent despite their low credit score. After signing the leases, immediately after signing the lease, the wife said to me, what's the grace period? I said, excuse me? What's the latest date that we can pay the rent without getting a penalty? Yes, that's right. These people hadn't just been victims of the terrible real estate market in Florida. They were also already planning to pay their rent as late as possible on their new place. Moral, when you get a sad sack applying to rent your apartment, don't let yourself be taken in by their stories. It's always someone else's fault that their life is miserable. If you rent to them, it will become your fault and your problem when you have to evict them. There are a lot of rules around renting to people to maintain fairness and avoid discrimination. The federal government and your state government have designated certain groups as being potential victims of as being potential victims of discrimination called protected classes. Massachusetts is among the states with the most protected classes, including not only the usual federal categories like race, color, religion, etc., but also things like sexual orientation and family status. Regardless of what the protected classes are in your state, it's best to adopt a system right away that will treat all applicants the same. For example, if you decide that you are going to require a minimum credit score, every applicant must meet that minimum or have something comparable. For example, a foreign, a foreign student without a social security number would have a J-1 visa that outlines his or her financial resources. The first time you decide to allow someone to rent from you with an inferior credit score, you invite a discrimination lawsuit. You should also be careful what you say to applicants. Because national origin is a federally protected category, for example, just asking someone where they're from could be construed, could be considered discriminatory. When someone is interested in your apartment, hand them an application, the same one that everyone else fills out, and restrict your conversation to the facts of the apartment. Normally, you can find courses given by the local real estate board, real estate agents, or property management companies that can help you learn to navigate these tricky waters. I do want to say something about credit score and people who are coming to you on a voucher. So a lot of people say it's not fair to use credit score when the person's rent is actually being paid by government agency. And I can see that, right? You can say, well, this person's credit score is, you know, 520. Is that, is that even go that low? I think so, like 530, whatever. This person's credit score is terrible, but 
It doesn't matter because they're not paying their rent. The government's paying their rent. I've talked to a lot of landlords about this, and I can certainly understand the logic, but I also have noticed that people who have a consistently very low credit score also don't tend to maintain the property as well. So you have to make your own decision. And like I said, you want to make sure that you're fair to everyone. So maybe if you have a property that's in a location where you're going to be accepting rental vouchers, or I shouldn't say that, no matter what location you're in, you legally have to accept rental vouchers. But in many areas, the voucher will not cover the rent. So you're not going to get applicants that have vouchers because their voucher won't be high enough to pay the rent. And with most voucher systems, it's illegal for them to pay in addition to your rental amount. So if you have a property that you think this is this in this area, the rental amount is going to be enough to cover to be covered by a voucher or is low enough to be able to be covered by a voucher, then maybe you want to lower your minimum score to like 600 or something like that or 650. But don't, I don't know, like I said, you've got to make your own decisions, but I think credit score says something about your character, about like if you're not paying your Verizon bill, even though you're not the one paying your rent, you probably just don't give a crap. You don't respect stuff, right? I mean, that's just my opinion. And you, you feel free to argue with me. <laughs> feel free to argue with me. But even when I've in, taken over properties that someone else put the tenants in and now I'm taking over the tenants, I've noticed that same, same trend. The higher the credit score, the faster, the sooner you're going to get the rent. So today is October 31st. Oh, sorry, today is October 30th, 2023. For one of the properties that I manage, I've already received rent from two of the apartments or two of the tenants. So, okay, I manage these two properties in Boston. One apartment, they've already paid the complete rent. The other apartment, one of the tenants has already paid the rent. And the other one I know will appear in my inbox tomorrow. That's Those are good credit score people. And that's how they roll. They pay a week early at least. And they have no issue with anything else. They have no issue with paying a security deposit, any of that kind of stuff. Anyway, whole nother conversation. Sorry to distract from the book. Commercial. For commercial or industrial leasing, leasing, the business is at least as important as the tenant. No matter how great the tenant, if the business fails, the person is no longer going to need the space and likely won't be able to keep paying the rent. Part of your job will be to research the business that the person has or wants to start. Ask to see business plans for new businesses and profit and loss statements for existing businesses. It's best if you can find someone who's been in business for a while and has outgrown her current space or needs more parking, etc. There are a lot of other considerations for commercial leasing, like tenant mix, compatible parking use, etc. EYIMBook.com has lots of helpful info for commercial landladies. DIY, do it yourself. There are pros and cons of doing things yourself at the beginning. It's important to learn as much as possible so that if you do outsource later, you know what you're asking of people and ultimately how you'd like things handled. <laughs> on the other hand, if you're a slow learner, it can have a dramatic impact on your ability to make a profit. You may be able to find a property manager who is willing to teach you the ropes, 
but most will be too busy and won't relish instructing themselves out of a job. If you can, plan to do everything yourself for at least the first year. Look for classes you can take to learn good landlady skills, local tenant law, and how to do some of the simpler home maintenance tasks. You can do this. Jane is a millionaire real estate investor from Canada who I met recently at a book writing seminar. She started investing when her husband left her with four children, the youngest of whom was only three days old. What a shit, huh? When Jane buys a new building, she introduces herself to tenants as the property manager. If they ask for something, she tells them that she'll talk to the owner about it. This gives her a chance to think about it and also gives her a layer of insulation between herself and the tenants. When the answer to her request is no, it's the owner, not Jane, who's the meanie. DSY, do some yourself. Be honest with yourself about the aspects of property management that you'd like to do or don't mind doing and what really makes you uncomfortable. Then you can find the right person or company to take up the slack. Here's a chart that lists the type of responsibilities that you may have as a property manager and what type of person you could hire to do that aspect of the job. Finding good tenants. That can be done by a real estate company, a real estate agency that specializes in rentals. Managing paperwork, an accountant or bookkeeper. Handling maintenance issues can be a tradesperson or property manager, and collecting rents can be an accountant, a bookkeeper, or a property manager. DNY, do none yourself. The ultimate hands-off is hiring a property manager to do everything. You can be on a beach somewhere relaxing. That The property manager everything, send you a monthly statement, and deposit the money into your account. You never even have to visit the property. Be careful here, though. The more hands-off you want to be, the more trust you must have in your property manager. There's a lot of opportunity to take advantage of absentee owners, high fees, unnecessary repairs, accepting bad tenants, etc. Property managers also have different ways of charging, some with a percentage of rents collected and some with a flat fee. Your best bet is to get a referral from another property owner or to read a lot of online reviews. One way to decide if it's time to hire a property manager is when you have several properties in your portfolio and the time to manage them is keeping you from other money-generating activities. By the time this happens, you'll be in an excellent position to hire the right person to fill your shoes. I also want to mention that if you want to, we'll talk about this later, but if you want to use money from your investment account, like a self-directed IRA, to buy your property, you will not be able to manage it yourself. So just keep that in mind. Partnerships. As we've discussed, one way to get the talent that you need is to find partners with complementary skills. It's important that you know and are upfront about your strengths and weaknesses so that you're able to partner with or outsource the skills that you lack. Partnerships have their own set of challenges and you'll need documents that concretely spell out each person's responsibility and how he or she will be compensated. Also, like what happens if someone dies or wants to sell before the other person or whatever. The most hands-off type of real estate... Oh, sorry. I'm going to just pause for a second. I'm getting 600. White glove investing. The most hands-off type of real estate investing involves giving your money to a person or entity that does everything. I call it white glove investing because you'll never have to get your hands dirty. 
It usually means that you will be the money person and someone else will supply the labor. This includes being the financial partner for a handy person who will do all the work for a flip or the shareholder of a REIT or other type of real estate holding company or turnkey property. If you are investing with money from your 401k, you have to use this type of arrangement. See, <laughs> you, can, you can cut that out from before. What's a REIT? REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. You can almost think of it as a mutual fund for real estate. REITs usually work like this. A large investment company buys lots of real estate. Big projects like the, rent, like the land rented by your local Home Depot, a shopping mall, office, skyscraper, etc. Most of these can be long-term tenants with reliable lease payments. So the REIT can offer a fairly consistent monthly dividend payment. My REIT, which I sold, my REIT pays a pretty consistent 6% dividend, dividend, which is excellent considering CDs are paying less than 1% right now. But REITs usually carry a high management fee. Be careful that the one you choose has a long history of reliably paying dividends and that the management fees will not erode your profit. Turnkey properties. If you're investing with IRA money or if you simply want a hands-off approach to investing, consider turnkey properties. In this type of investment, a third party will manage the property and any renovations necessary. The company will normally be paid a percentage of the rents collected. The property will likely be located in an area with inexpensive homes, often quite far from where you live. You may never meet the tenants or see the property after the initial purchase. You rely on the property management firm to take care of everything. You just wait for the money to be transferred to your account. So a lot of times the way this happens is that a company will go in and they'll buy a fixer-upper. They'll gut it. They'll start from scratch. They'll get it all fixed up and nice. They'll put a tenant in there a lot of times with a multi-year lease. And then they sell it like that, like a package. And they just stay on as manager. So that can be a great option. They call those turnkey properties. Hard money lending. A fun way to get started in real estate investing is to finance a flip for an experienced flipper. Most cities have investor clubs. Attending these meetings will often put you in touch with people looking to partner or borrow money from someone to finance their flip. You'll want to study their paperwork and propose and yeah. You'll want to study their paperwork and proposal very carefully and if possible, visit the property yourself before committing. But these should offer a high interest rate as well as some points to you. Each point is 1% of the mortgage amount. Please don't get involved in this type of situation unless you have both a real estate attorney familiar with this type of scenario and a builder or contractor who can review the proposal and give you confirmation that the person knows what she's doing. Hard money loans are usually between 5 and 15% higher than the person would pay for a conventional mortgage. Clearly, this type of financing is the last resort for builders and people doing flips. If a bank won't finance the project and none of the person's friends or family are interested, you should be very careful and make sure you understand the risks before agreeing. The worst case scenario should be that you own the property or are gaining some other guaranteed concession if the property doesn't go as planned. There's more information on all these types of investing on the website, eyimbook.com. Chapter four action items. Here's your work. Honestly evaluate your strengths and weaknesses. Decide whether to hire someone, partner with someone, or learn the skills yourself to fill in the gaps. Regardless of what you decide, 
learn the skills. That's it for chapter four of Empower Your Inner Millionaire. Next week, we're going to read chapter five, or I'm going to read chapter five, and hopefully you're going to listen. If you missed it and you're like, what the heck are you talking about? Go back a few weeks to chapter one and the intro. Oh my God. If you are wondering what the heck we're talking about, go back a few weeks. You'll find chapter one and the intro, and then you can read along with us, or you can come along with us. If you want to have a hard copy of the book, again, you go to eyimbook.com. A fantastic week. And I'm really excited that we're doing this together.